Hey, this is Brenna Blaine, and you're listening to Can I Say That? Hey everybody, this week on the show we have John Mark McMillan talking about creativity. Uh, something that really stood out to me about our conversation was this concept of honesty within creativity. I think this takes two parts. One part would be awareness, um, that is awareness of where you're at in your life, especially so emotionally and spiritually. And the second part of it would be accuracy. I think depending on your personality, it's really easy for us to either A, downplay what's going on in our life or just even pretend it's something's not an issue or a struggle when it really is or on the other side of the spectrum exaggerating things blowing things up that maybe really aren't that big of a deal but for one reason or another we make them a bigger deal than they are so I, th- I think it's important when we're being creative that we are honest um, with ourselves and with others both what's going on and being as accurately expressive about what's going on in our life and our walk with God. So Brenna, why is being creative or creativity um, a difficult question or difficult topic? When I think of creativity um, in the church, I think of the chapels in Europe with beautiful architecture and the insides covered in murals and statues adorning the roof. So I think historically, it seems like the church has been really good at being creative. So why do you think this is a difficult question now? Well, I think we've ran so far away from Catholicism that we've maybe thrown the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to engaging with art. And even the evangelical church, I think, wanted to strip everything down to the simplistic idea of just being a place that offers the gospel. But we forget that offering the gospel to people, to different people in different facets, works differently. And so I think there are some people who will see God in a different way than they've never seen him before if they can see him through art. I also think of a class I recently took about prophecy and the prophets and this idea that the prophets spoke in this language of poetry. We asked the question, why? Why is that? Why why didn't they just speak to the people in a language that everyone else spoke? Why did they choose poetry? And it's this uncommon but overwhelmingly engaging way to talk to people about something that is meaningful and so I think we see creativity in the Bible and I think a lot of young people are hungry for that again and and don't know um, or they're hearing maybe their parents or their grandparents or different people in their life saying that's that's not a way to live or that's not a way to make money and I think in both facets whether you're going to be creative vocationally or if you're going to be creative as a spiritual practice, I think both are extremely important and meaningful. And I think the church is missing out on something really beautiful that can be done when we press into creativity as a spiritual practice. Okay, so before we jump into our questions about creativity, can you just share a little bit about your upbringing and your walk with God up until this point? Yes. So this could be a really long portion if I'm not careful because my history with God is almost as um, I'm 40. I grew up, you know, as a pastor's kid. And so God's been a part of my life whether the concept or the entity, the being, the person, or the conversation, 
you know, God's been a part of me in one shape or form for a long, long time. And, Mm. you know, so even as a kid, like I was obsessed with uh, sort of the ideas of existence and God and what happens when you die, what happened before I was born, those types of things. And so the God thing has been like, the God conversation has been a big part of my uh, <laughs> my life from the very beginning. You mm. know, I, I tell people that uh, if I was an atheist, I would be obsessed with the God I didn't believe in. You know, that's I'm just sort of obsessed with God. I just kind of realized that, you know. So growing up with a sort of existential obsession in a, you know, as a pastor's son and a Christian family in the, in the South, the Bible Belt, you know, so... <laughs> I, I guess what I'm saying is like the, I could jump into different times in my life. My story with God changes a lot mm. over the years. But as far as my background goes, I mean, I had such an amazing upbringing. And so many people you talk to, and maybe this is boring, because so many people you talk to are so mad and hurt by the way they were brought up. And, and that really wasn't me. I mean, there are definitely things I didn't agree with, and I saw things that weren't great. In church, but I mean, that's just sort of humanity in general. But I grew up in, um, my parents were, came to faith uh, during the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s. I was born in 1979, and I spent the first probably five years of my life on what my parents swear was not a Christian commune. But if I described it to you, it would uh, look and sound very much like a commune. Mm. It was, uh, they called it the farm. And it, um, you know, as far as I can tell, it wasn't weird. I don't think, you know, like I feel like in a lot of those situations, you know, people place guilt on you if you want to leave or to come and go. Yeah. I don't think it was that kind of thing. I think it was just hippie, just a really beautiful, exciting, hippie expression of 60s and 70s young Christianity. And my parents were deep in it, and they loved it. You know, they hit some roadblocks. I mean, I think with anyone, um, anyone with faith, at a certain age, you're going to run into things you're going to have to work through, you know. And there's a lot of idealism in the 60s, -hmm. you know. Um, I mean, across the board, right? A lot of idealism. And that, you know, in the the sort of Jesus movement, Christianity, there's a lot of idealism as well, because there's a lot of very young believers you know, and a lot of young believers who were discipling other young believers, and you have the young discipling the young sometimes, you know, um, in a lot of ways you have the, I don't want to say the blind leading the blind, you know, but the immature leading the less mature sometimes. And there's some older people of faith and experienced people of faith and some very um, smart, um, mature, young people. But at the same time, I think my parents hit roadblocks. So they moved from the farm. And my dad, uh, he had a hard time after that, spiritually speaking. He, even while they lived on the farm, he worked, you know, he was a business person. He, he was a salesman. He sold kitchen equipment. But he always felt this call to some sort of uh, ministry. He always felt like he was supposed to be a pastor or sometime in full-time ministry. So he started multiple churches, and for whatever reason, oftentimes he felt that he wasn't um, good enough or he, he, you know, because this goes back to maybe some of the idealism. He felt like, at least I remember him saying at one point, he felt like because he wasn't able to leave his job and do uh, ministry full-time, he felt like that uh, that meant that he wasn't really supposed to be the leader. You know, I feel like today people would scratch their heads at that and wouldn't understand that. You know, that almost it's almost encouraged you. Uh, you know, work a job. You understand what's happening with the average individual. But for my dad, that was I think a sense of they had a sense of shame there. At a point, uh, he felt like the Lord told him or spoke to him or inspired him to leave his job 
and that the faith from leaving his job was going to, um, that he needed to use faith and just do it. And uh, this was not a thing he did often, you know, and not a thing he did lightly. But he left his job as a salesman, and we didn't know what we were going to do. He didn't know what he was going to do. He was going to travel around and preach. And uh, some people asked him, a very small remnant of people from one of the church he had been involved in, um, asked him to come and lead their church. So he started pastoring this really tiny church in a storefront uh, in a suburb uh, of Charlotte. And uh, that was probably, that was in the 90s, I want to say. That was the mid-90s. I remember being a young teen, you know. So I remember the same time he took over that church was the first time I was thinking like, man, I really want to talk to a girl. I was like, how do I do that? You know, like, I remember, you know, then finally starting a little youth group and thinking, I wish more girls came to the youth group. Oh, my gosh. This is very small. You know, so you're Mm -hmm. like 12, 13, and so, like, I'm just sort of, like, figuring all that out. Or (laughs) I'm still figuring it out today, if I'm honest. But you know what I mean, just beginning to, like, enter into that conversation. So... Um, so I grew up with my dad pastoring a non-denominational, sort of spirit-filled, borderline Pentecostal um, storefront church. And it was pretty exciting. The, wor- the guys in the worship team were all, you know, they all got saved in the 60s and 70s. And so they taught me classic rock songs on my guitar. And I was learning Eric Clapton and Hendrix, or trying oh to learn gosh. Hendrix on my guitar. And we would sit out back in the, lo- the loading dock. And the worship guys would show me how to play songs, you know, uh, classic rock tunes. And so so that's kind of how I grew up. That's sort of my background of faith. Like, you know, people ask me, nowadays I feel like it's a big question when people ask you, do you consider yourself evangelical? And I was oh, like, yeah. I don't remember hearing that word mm. <laughs> until, you know, late teens, early adulthood. And I don't know that I ever thought about whether or not I was evangelical. And I think that's partly because we were just not connected to the mainline denominations, you know, that would be prevalent here in the southern United States. You know, the Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian. I was totally unaware of what was going on with any of them. Our little church was sort of, you know, Jesus movement meets the non-denominational, kind of like the vineyard movement, but kind of its own thing. So it's largely disconnected from any official movement, you know, but that's kind of how I grew up. So my dad was very much into faith, praying for the sick, that type of thing. And later on, he got into more of the, um, uh, what do you call the, um, the Toronto blessing and that kind of um, movement, you know, where you prayed for people and they fell down and people spoke Oh, in yeah, like, and... yeah, like Benny Hinn, kind of. Yep, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. Though it would be very different, a very different version than the Benny Hinn version. The okay. Benny Hinn version <laughs> okay. is very official and the white suit and the, <laughs> the show. There's still a much, very much a show with Benny Hinn. As this was very more down to earth. This was very more like it wasn't one pastor just praying for people. It was the whole congregation praying for one another, which I actually think was really cool. Yeah. As a young as a young man trying to figure out how to impress a girl, any girl, <laughs> like you know, it was uh, it was intimidating. It's like I don't want you to pray for me. I don't want to fall down. I don't want to shake. I don't want to do any of that kind of stuff. You know. But my, that was my dad's version of faith, and it actually was a very exciting way to grow up. And a lot of people would probably think it was weird, but looking back, I don't think it. It was as weird as it seemed. People were genuine and people were reflecting on who God was and what maybe you would call contemplation. People were doing that, you know, on the floor with their hands raised (laughs) with modesty cloth draped over them, (laughs) you know. And so this is a very normal part of culture, I think, in the early 1900s, the late 1800s. It It was a thing I grew up with that I think 
people who are not believers, especially, but even believers in the mainland would just think, this is the weirdest thing ever. But that's the way I grew up, and it was a lot of fun. We went to church a lot, and I learned music that way, and I met a lot of friends, and we had a good time, and it kept me from getting into drugs, even though most of my friends did. I don't know. For me, it was like I I guess my existential obsession, you know, uh, really enjoyed something about going to church, even though I, I also have for many years didn't feel like I fit in church either but so anyway like I said I could talk for a long time about my spiritual history because I feel like I've um I've lived uh, there's a lot of different moments and the journey is um full of different what am I trying to say here I've lived through a lot of different seasons of faith let me put it that way what was the point in the middle of all that that you figured out I want to participate in art I want to write music and trying to like wrestle with. Is this something that I can do for a living, but also is this something that actually matters to God? Yep. So in the beginning, I started writing music because I wanted to be a part of something. So my buddy Mark came over to the house and he had a red Stratocaster and he could play all the songs off the radio. And I knew like, I am not, and not to keep going back to this, but this is that phase of life where this is everything, <laughs> or it was everything to me. Yeah. But I was like, I'm not good at sports, but if I can learn to play the guitar, then I might impress some girls. <laughs> so, I st- you know, it's not just about girls. It's just about fitting in in general. You know, you want to, you know, you want some sort of romance. You want to be noticed. You want to be, you want the other people in your peer group to, you know, appreciate you. And, you know, and, and at the same time, you're sort of like figuring out, you know, how all that works and, 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 and looking for something to do that would help me be noticed. You know, and maybe not everyone is like that, but I always wanted to be special. You know, I always wanted to have something about me that was special or interesting. And I didn't feel like I had much of that. You know, and I thought, well, Mark can play the guitar. If I can play songs on the radio like Mark can, then uh, people will notice me, you know. And so that's really why I started playing the guitar. Um, And it was a lot more difficult than I initially had thought. And. I think that it's hard to remember exactly when I first got involved on the worship team, but I think my parents wanted um, me to have opportunities to do what I liked in a context of faith. You know, so for instance, a lot of my friends were getting into trouble, and uh, I wasn't getting into trouble, but I was around trouble a lot. And so my parents thought, you know, how hey, how would you like to play guitar on the worship team? And maybe for them when they saw, because see, my parents, and I think people give, um, you know, I give this generation a little bit of a hard time. But see, my parents grew up in the 60s where they were so connected to the music, right? They were so connected to the music. The music was such a huge part of their identity and who they were. And it was so connected to the culture. Is that wasn't, I think we assume that that's, common with every age group but it's really not it really started with the 60s when all of a sudden music became such a big part of who you were who your generation was and what was going on and and they had so many of those friends died overdosed committed suicide um some of them um died of hiv and so like this music was connected to like the drug use and the experimentation and the promiscuity all these things that we sort of like laugh at now like my parents had friends die because of some of the paths they took that began with the music so you know as a kid and even now you know like i feel like they were a little bit overboard but you know they they see like how the music affected them and in 
and they would consider in very negative ways, they wouldn't say that the music took a hold of you and made you. They wouldn't say you were um, demon-possessed by the music. Maybe mm-hmm. at a point they would have said that, but I don't think they think that now for sure. But, you know, but so they see um, the negative uh, things that came out of their culture, and then and then they turn the radio on and they hear type of music that we're listening to, which is a lot darker, a whole lot darker. I mean, they listen to Peace, Hope, and Love, and because of some of the paths people took, they ended up dead with HIV or with drug habits or, um, you know, all sorts of bad places. At least the people they knew personally. I'm not saying that was common for everyone, you know, because a lot of good things came out of the 60s. A lot of good things came out of that music. There's a lot of good revolution, too. But uh, then, you know, but they see this peace, hope, and love music and where this culture went, and um, at least in their minds. And then now they hear me listening to this super dark music. And so they flipped out a little bit. And I think it's understandable. So I don't think we truly understand the world they grew up in. You know, I don't think we really understand who they... You know, boomers... Uh, I ha, You know, I have a bone to pick with boomers, too. But we don't really understand boomers. We don't understand what it was like to go to college and know that if you failed this exam, you were going to get shipped off to Vietnam and a lot of them died. I don't think we know... I don't think we fully understand the, that generation, you know. And so here I am, I'm late Gen Xer, and I'm listening to Metallica and Nirvana and Alice in Chains and all the super heavy, dark music, and uh, my parents kind of freaked out. So I think they um, they wanted to help me get involved. Instead of just condemning my musical taste, I think they wanted they wanted to fight fire with fire and hopefully help me get involved in things that were going to be positive for me. So... So I think that's probably why I started playing on the worship team. It's just they wanted me to hang out with musicians and people I respected that were believers and you know were going to be positive influences. When I started playing music, when the faith conversation came in, though, it was really interesting because I always loved music. I always loved music, and I don't know when I thought that I would do something with music connected to faith. I actually remember really not liking Christian music as a kid. You know, like just thinking like, I really don't, I don't know why I don't like it, but I just don't really like it, not being connected to it or drawn to it. So I'd really never thought like, oh, I want to be in Christian music. But I think it had more to do with, um, towards the end of high school, I was not doing good in school. My friends were moving away. And I'm I'm a pretty emotional person. Like I, I am pretty uh, high highs and low lows. And this was a low low. I, I, I decided... My brothers, they were either doing homeschool at the time or they were going to a private school. And some of my friends moved and my grades were slipping. And I told my parents, I was like, you know, I think I just want to like finish up high school at home and start taking some college classes and get a job. And so my senior year, that's what I did, <laughs> which is so funny because I'm super extroverted. And I feel like most people in that position would be like, what in the world are you thinking? This is your senior year. But my senior year and maybe even the last year and a half of school, I finished at home. And um, gosh, just to be honest, like I was having an early existential crisis in high school. And I remember, um, I remember having a moment when, uh, this is the craziest story, but my parents, my dad, the, the storefront we had for my church, um, used to be a swimming pool display. They used to sell swimming pools and they had a bunch of small display units. And, uh, my dad decided they wanted to do baptisms, but it was in the winter, I think. 
And so they set up a swimming pool in the church, in the storefront church. One of the one of the swimming pools, one of the display models, the small display models, like above ground, is above ground pool in the church. And I don't know what it was. A friend of mine that I'd been um, spending a lot of time with, and he was a good guy, but he was definitely not actively serving the Lord. I don't know what it was. He got up, and he decided to be baptized. And something after he was baptized, I just felt like I was supposed to go up and get baptized. And at this moment, I was, um, not that this matters, but just to give you some perspective, in the church, this is what you, this is the scene you would see is, you know, we weren't a high church, there weren't a lot of suits, but people, you know, were dressed up for evening church. And then there was me from the back row, had super long hair, and my Nine Inch Nails t-shirt. It's kind of my, um, at the time, it was kind of my uh, uniform. Massive baggy pants and my chain wallet. And uh, I just, I climbed up (laughs) over the pool and I had them baptize me. And I just remember thinking like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And and I just really don't know. Um, I knew that I'd just been wrestling existentially and I feel like that was a moment of surrender. Just sort of like, you know, God, Whoever you are, whatever you are, like, I've been fighting you for a long time, and it's not going very well. I was like, it's not, <laughs> I, I'm not very happy. And in that moment, I just gave it up. I just decided, all right, whatever you are, I'm just, I'm surrendering to you. And after that, I began to get more and more involved with people who were excited about their faith, spend more time with those people. Instead of my friends who are going down, you know, kind of the drugs and, uh, I mean, you know, more negative paths. And I remember there was a moment, some friends of mine went to a big church conference, uh, Canada, and they brought back a Delirious tape, a tape by the band that became Delirious. And I don't even know that people know much about who they are anymore, but in the 90s, it was a big deal. And I remember listening to it, and for some reason, it was the first time I heard worship music. I was like, I was like, I feel like seen. (laughs) You know, this feels like what I want to sing. Yeah. You know, and I thought, okay, maybe I could do worship music. For years, though, I just sort of played guitar in bands. I'd never sang. And we did this little home group. And maybe it was part of me trying to establish myself with a group of friends who cared about, who cared about God. You know, I didn't, really, I didn't know what I was doing. I just remember me and my buddy Keith, I called my buddy Keith and said, Hey, let's go print up some flyers um, about a group. We're going to get together and like pray and sing. And in my mind, singing meant like I was going to play the guitar and some of, some of the girls I knew who sang and the youth worship team could sing and you know and and when we and and I had a bunch of kids show up at the house you know at my parents house we even moved the furniture outside my parents were just so excited that I was doing something for the lord you know this is a big deal for them they let us move the furniture outside and I started playing the guitar and the girls who were supposed to sing were nervous and so they didn't know when to start and so I thought well I'll start singing I'm really not a singer but I'm I'll start singing and maybe they'll join in I started singing, and um, and that's how I started leading worship. Wow. You know? And really, it was just more of like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what we're supposed to do. I'm just trying to walk this new journey. I don't even know what the journey is. I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm still half embarrassed by church culture. I'm still a little bit in the dark about who God is anyway. But I just know that, like, there's something here for me. And immediately... Uh, Immediately, it had an impact on a lot of people, a lot of young people, you know, and for months we had kids, I say kids because I'm old now, but they were teenagers, you know, probably between 15 and 19, and even some young adults would show up and uh, we would sit around. I didn't 
preach messages. I'd heard a lot about the Bible from church, you know, but I hadn't spent a lot of time reading the Bible up until that point. I knew a lot just growing up. You know, you I've been in so many meetings, you know, church meetings growing up. But I didn't know what I was doing, but it was really exciting. And, you know, cause, because I was young, it, it didn't last very long, but it was really interesting while it did. And I ended up um, going to a ministry school. And while I was in ministry school, which I didn't know why I was going to ministry school, to be honest. Like, I wasn't trying to be a pastor. I wasn't trying to be in any sort of ministry capacity. I just knew I didn't didn't want to go to college and do the normal thing. Um, I really loved music, but I wasn't very confident in my skills, right? And so I went to ministry school. It seemed exciting. I knew a bunch of people who were going to that ministry school, and it seemed... Uh, it just seemed exciting to me at the time. And while I was in ministry school, once again, I wanted to be involved in the worship team because, of course, I wanted to be accepted, <laughs> you know. And so I wrote songs so that, uh, I mean, it, I, I'm, I'm being a little hard on myself. It wasn't totally selfish, but I think a big part of it was I, I wanted to serve the Lord in a way. I wanted to serve the Lord with others in a way that made sense and was exciting, you know. And So to play on the worship team, you had to write your own songs. And so I wrote my own songs, um, mostly... T- I think, so that I could play on the worship team. And while I was at that ministry school, I met a lot of people um, that I'm still friends with now. I don't know if you know who Jonathan and Melissa Helser are. Yeah. They went to that school, and we were good friends. We met back then. We were probably 19. Wow. No way. That's cool. Um, Yep. Yep. Josh Baldwin is another one who went to that ministry school. He's a good friend of mine. It was really interesting how many people came out of that little school. So it, this is, but I'm, I'm, I promise I'm getting somewhere here. But really, for me, it, it all began when I um, went through a really, really dark time in my life just after ministry school. So I, I got engaged to a girl. We were going to get married, and the relationship totally fell apart. And, you know, I felt um, like I'd been... Um, you know, treated wrong, and I felt rejected, and, you know, um, and I, I was, I mean, I was depressed. I was really, really depressed. It's probably the only time in my whole life where I had, I legitimately fantasized about suicide. I didn't do anything about, I, you know, but there was one night where I thought, like, if I take a bunch of Advil, will it kill me? You know, so I, I just didn't know how it worked. I was like, it's like, I don't think it will. I think it might just make me really sick, and I don't want that. <laughs> and then, I, you know, I mean, it's just those terrible conversations you have within yourself at those worst moments of your life. And I, I had moved down to Charleston, South Carolina, to work with a church, and I was, I felt really alone down there. So I ended up moving back. I got a job at the Olive Garden. No, I didn't get a job at the Olive Garden. I was at the Olive Garden, and I quit. I ended up working at another restaurant that I'd worked at before I moved in. That restaurant closed. And I was out of a job, so I didn't have a job, I didn't have a car, and I was totally depressed. And so once again, my friend Mark, he, uh, he came over to the house and he said, Hey, uh, my grandmother is uh, moving to assisted living, and she says, I can live at her house if we'll fix it up, so you want to move in with me? So I moved in with my friend Mark, and we had, a house, we had the house together, and I say we fixed it up, but we didn't do much. <laughs> he did a lot more than I did. But I would sit out on the porch late at night and play music because I was depressed and I couldn't sleep. And so for me, that was when I kind of met the Lord in music. You know, I would sit out on the porch and I would think of it as being like my window into the world, you know, and I felt like... Me and God would sit there, and I could play, I could write songs. It's the first time in my entire life, this is where I learned how to write a song, really. 
for the first time in my life, I wrote songs that weren't for anybody else. They were 100% for me or for what I had to say to God. And a lot of times, I was mad at God for the way things had happened. And, you know, but what's really interesting is after that season, people started to actually notice my songs and started to care. As before that, I don't feel like people cared so much. And um, I was, not that I was a better writer or better musician and definitely not a better singer, but I think what happened in those moments is that all of a sudden I started singing what I felt like, not what I felt like I was supposed to say, but started singing about how I actually felt. And I think that's when I started to have an impact on people, when people started to notice my music, when people started wanting me to come and perform or lead worship or play shows or um so that's a really long i think i just spent half an hour (laughs) to get there but that's when it all began for me music became a conversation i had with god and the universe about how i really felt about what was happening in the world as i saw it and when i got when i was able to be totally honest the game changed and i've been able to tap into that the rest of my life and that same place, and I've grown as a musician and as a singer, but it's still like that's the place I tap into when I write songs. Do you feel like God has continued to meet you in new ways within that creative space? Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, and and it, and I think it's it's sometimes it's been good for me, and sometimes it's been bad. Not not bad in the sense that it's something I shouldn't do, but in the sense that like my conversations with God have all been in songs, and so. You know, like on the Mercury and Lightning record, when the first line is, I've been, <laughs> I've been chasing God and I've been coming up short. I think people didn't know what to do with it. But I was like, this is what I've been doing the whole time, is having conversations with God. But I've also learned that, like, at least in my opinion, God seems to really appreciate honesty. I, I think that God really appreciates honesty. I mean, that's a huge thing to say, <laughs> because we have to sit here and talk about exactly who and what is God anyway. That's a big conversation. But for me, when I was able to be honest with myself and God, there was always grace. And when I have not been honest with myself and God, there's not necessarily grace. So for me, it's like even the music was not interesting until I learned how to be honest with myself and God. So I don't know if I answered your question very well just then. No, that was great. So uh, I actually originally, I didn't graduate, but I went to school for music and I did four years, which is funny that I never graduated. (laughs) Uh, But it was a super tiny school you've never heard of and I didn't hear of until I decided I was going there. But the music department was really small because it was a small school. And so all of us got key fobs to the the music building. Uh Even to this, I'm not a particularly skilled pianist and definitely singing is not one of my giftings. But still to this day, some of my most intimate moments with the Lord, I think, were taking that key fob at like midnight on a Tuesday and just going into the music building, going into one of the practice rooms with a piano and just like singing what was on my heart. Like, Lord, I don't even know how to say this to you other than to play it and sing it. So I, I, I feel you on that. Well, if you think about it, like it's not a common thing most people get to experience. Um, like, I don't know how many people... Um, I mean, you know, like, I think people may either compare it to or call it contemplation. It, you know, maybe it's the same thing. But how many people sit for hours at a time just considering? And that's what you do with music. And, you know, I don't mean when you're learning the songs, but when you, you know, when you sit up late and you play those chords on the piano and you 
and you allow yourself to feel them. And then when you're writing songs, most of what you're doing is just trying to get into a space where you actually feel something that you can communicate, you know? And so, I mean, maybe that's a big part of it. Maybe it has to do with the music, or maybe it has to do with, like, the fact that most people don't stop for two or three hours and consider the world. Like, that sounds that sounds strange, but it just struck me just now when you said that, like, how many people do that? Get up in the middle of the night, go down to the the music room, or sit out on the porch for hours alone. I don't. People don't do that. They're on their phone a lot. They watch TV a lot, and I love to read. But, you know, they read a lot, and then they go to sleep, and they get up and go to work. You know, like, that's almost become a foreign thing in our culture. The act of, like, clearing out time to feel, to to consider things, you know? Like, it's, you know, prayer for sure. But it's not just it's not just a list, right? Like, you're doing a lot of feeling, and I've done that, I've done that off and on for my whole life. And, and I just realized just now, it's like, I don't know how many people have ever done that before. Mm. You know? Do you think that being creative is a spiritual practice that even not maybe artists per se should participate in? I definitely think so. I think we we like to, I think often we like to make very clear boundaries about who is an artist and what it means to be creative. But I think those are just things we came up with. You know, you can be, some of the most creative people I've ever met are mothers you know mm. um who we we had Amen. a girl <laughs> we, we had a girl used to keep our kids and she's a mom now but she would um draw she would instead of buying coloring books she would draw things that she knew our kids would want to color by hand you know and she would spend the night before like coming up with ideas um, my sister-in-law she's kept our kids she's about to be a mom too and she uh she would just think of games to play and create games and create you know and so like cs lewis talks about how kids learn through play you know i think we learn you know how to experience the world through creativity i think that's one way we learn how to experience the world is by engaging the imagination anyone who's ever done anything in the world has imagined it first and so like I'm a huge proponent for imagining with God. What does it mean to take some time and just like imagine with God? But also I think creativity is is a form of faith anyway, right? Creativity is a form of faith in the sense that when you're an artist or a musician or any type of creative person, you walk into a room without something and you leave that room with something that didn't previously exist, right? And that's faith because... You know, if you've never written a song before, people ask me, how do you write a song? And I'm like, well, there are principles for writing good songs. There are principles for getting better at songs. But you write a song by opening your mouth and singing what comes to your mind. And it's the same with the artist. You just, you imagine it and you paint it. Or even if you're looking at something that's real, you're imagining what that looks like on the paper. You know, so artists and musicians are constantly using faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the things that you don't see. You know, it's the things that are real, but that are, maybe it's, but are invisible, right? You know, so the song is real, it's just invisible, it doesn't exist in the world yet, but I get to bring it into the world. So, an artist or creative person, they they press into the unknown, and that's ultimately what creativity is, is, is pressing into the unknown. You walk to the edge of your brain, and you say, what's, what's just beyond this? And you push it. And it's a song. Um, and maybe that was a little bit dramatic way to say it, but it's true. Like when I'm writing a song, like 
I'll have ideas and I'll get ideas. But when you sit down, the song doesn't exist in your brain. Sort of like you like you have these ideas and you're like, well, I'm going to have to jump. I'm going to have to sing something. I don't know if it's good or bad. I'm going to have to come up with some words that I don't know are interesting or not. But the, I won't know it until I do it. And this is what the creative person does. This is the creative life you know, and so in a sense, the creative life is a micro version of the life of faith. I don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. And so, for instance, I could look at the world and I could come up with a list of things that could possibly happen tomorrow. You know, if you want to look at history, if you want to study war and the Holocaust, you know, and you want to look at human history, the Holocaust is actually more common in human history than we want to believe. I think it's just, it was just the first thing to happen on such a large scale, technologically speaking, you know, World War II. But it's sort of like, this is very common for large people groups to eliminate other people groups. This is sort of constant in human history, as far back as we know. I mean, it's in the Bible. And so you could look at history, you could say, well, what could happen tomorrow? X, Y, Z. Well, I can live that way, right? I can live as though tomorrow it's going to be hard or terrible. You know, but what does that do? What type of person does that make me? Or I can say, you know what? What else could happen tomorrow? We're going to have some new nieces and nephews in this family eventually. That's going to be exciting. Uh, my kids are growing up, and that's really exciting to see the people they become every day. I'm going to have another day to sing. I'm going to have another day to love people. I'm going to have another day to help people. You know what I mean? It's like all these things are real. So when I wake up, is the unknown my friend or my enemy? If I'm, if I'm exercising faith, you know, then the unknown is my friend. The unknown is not my enemy. And this is what artists do. They make friends with the unknown. And so I guess that's a really long, dramatic way to say, I don't, you know, I think there's probably two levels. In one sense, I think every human being is called to be creative. Every human being is called to, to lay awake at night and think about how they can be a better person and think about how they can make the world a better place Think about, lay awake at night and dream about the people they love and how to make their world better. Lay awake at night and think about how to, um, lay awake at night and imagine uh, with God. You know, every everyone, I think everyone is called to do that, right? Every human being, and because we all do. But then maybe there's like vocationally is maybe a different thing, right? Maybe that's a different level. And so maybe some people are called vocationally or maybe it's just um i don't know what am i trying to get at here i think there's two things a broad one and then a more specific one right going back to something you said about parents maybe think maybe not being excited or maybe that the arts um are um undervalued or looked down upon so i i would i would place things in a couple of different categories if you're going to be a human being you're going to serve you're going to serve the lord you're going to serve your sisters and brothers you're going to serve the people you love you're going to serve your community, whatever. You're obviously called to serve, right? And as believers, like, you know, greatest in the kingdom is a servant. So, I mean, you're called to serve. And so we serve in a, and just for the sake of the conversation, I'm going to break it down into two very distinct categories, even though there's such a spectrum, right? But category number one is you do things that keep people alive, right? You're a farmer and you raise crops, um, you raise animals, um, or you're a builder, so you build houses. You're you're in uh, healthcare. You keep people alive. You know you you help them live healthy lives. Uh, you know so there's that category. In the other category, there are things that make living sound like a good idea in the first place. Things like love, like friendship, like art, like poetry. You know. So there's food that sustains you, which you need. But then there's food 
that makes you excited to sit down and eat it. And so to me, neither is more important than the other. And here's why, because certainly there are times in history when like we just need to survive. But I think we also have to have a vision for like, why are we surviving in the first place? You know, why are we alive at all? And C.S. Lewis would kind of say it that way. Like, there are certain things that are essential to life, and then there are things that make living a thing worth doing. It's like, I don't need any friends. I don't need relationships. I need acquaintances to get things done. But in the in the end, like, what what is the point of surviving if I don't have a, a life, if I don't have someone to share a life with? If I don't have friendship, if I don't have love, then it's sort of like, what's the point? And, and to take it even further, a lot of times people don't do a good job of surviving when they don't have reasons to live. So I think that depending on the way people grew up, like I remember I was listening to a podcast the other day with someone whose parents really, really not happy that he was growing up to be an artist, but his parents grew up in the Great Depression where children and elderly people were dying in the United States because they didn't have food. I mean, people, there are people who are hungry in this country, but rarely do people in the United States die from malnutrition. And that was happening during the Great Depression. And so, of course, in their minds, they're, you know, like the best thing, the most important thing they could do for their family is to work and to bring and to provide. And so a lot of that generation only expressed love through providing needs. And so when you want to, when, when your child says, hey, I want to do something that does not provide, they see that as a waste. Like, what are you doing? We, we, we gave our lives so that you could have an opportunity and now you want to do a job, you know, especially, you know, if you're talking in the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, now you want to do a job that no one gets paid to do. Plus, what are you contributing? You know, nowadays, you know, you can be a designer. You can make good money designing websites, a photographer. You can make good money taking pictures. But those types of things, you know, until the last 20, 30 years were not um, considered to be, especially like web design, right? That was not considered to be a job. You know, so I do think... It's important to understand where people are coming from. But at the end of the day, I think art is just as important. Creativity is just as important because creativity is in that category of reasons to live. And the re- and, and to me, it's because a lot of the pressing into the unknown has to do with, at least with music, the music side of it. The reason I press into the unknown to write songs is because I want to have a connection beyond myself. And so maybe that goes back to sitting on the porch. Because that's what I was doing is the part of your brain and heart that God occupies the most is the unknown part, right? Anytime there's something we don't know, we we automatically hand that over to God. And so like a lot of the pressing into the unknown in a lot of ways was was conversation with God. It was me trying to reach out beyond myself and have a connection with another person or entity, you know. And and that's what music has always done. It's created opportunities for people to connect. Whether you're the one writing the songs or listening to the songs, when you hear a song that like, you know, brings a tear to your eye, it's usually because you are feeling something that someone else felt and you kind of, in a weird way, feel connected to that person. And I think even on a subconscious level, that's what's happening when you listen to music, when you make music, when you hear music in a way that moves you. At least that's what it does for me. And I think that's why music is a thing experienced by lots of people. And even to this day, people desire to experience music with other people. You know, like, why would people pay $600 to see the Rolling Stones in a stadium? We checked on tickets the other day, and that's what it is. 600 bucks. And I think there are a lot of reasons. One is maybe the history with the band. But you can listen to the music on your phone. But why would you pay the money to do that with 
you know, a bunch of other people. It's I think it's because of the f- the thing that happens to you when you're listening to music is you feel connected with with other people. And so music is always a thing that facilitates that connection. And in my mind, that's why music has always been so closely connected to worship. Because worship simply isn't music, but music has always been a massive presence in our conversation of worship. Back to King David and beyond, right? As long as we, you know, throughout history, and even in different religions. You know, this is really interesting. How many different religions have music in some religions, you're actually not allowed to use music outside of the religion. It's really, really interesting why music is so closely connected to worship, you know, across the board. And I think it has to do with what it does, the way it makes you feel connected, you know, to God and to the people around you, which I kind of think is the job of religion, is the job of spiritual development, the job of discipleship, right? Is to grow connected to God and to people. And I mean, and that goes all the way back to the most simple commandments of Jesus to love God and love your neighbor. You do that by feeling connected to those people. At least you begin that way. Yeah, something recent I've been uh, thinking about recently is this whole concept um, in cinematography and film uh, that I'm seeing of like this, the importance of people being seen and of like, you know, it's important to have heroines in films that are ethnically African-American and female or male and Indian American or like just this idea that sometimes when you don't see someone doing something, you don't see it as a possibility. I also work in, I'm a software developer vocationally. And this idea that I think it's for every woman in tech, there's uh, it's 45 men. I've got to believe there's just some part of it is like, because young girls don't see historically older women in tech, it's just not even, oh, that's for, that's for the guys. Oh, that's for the nerdy, skinny white dudes. And just this importance of just seeing someone do something as opening up as a reality. And I think in music, the importance of, and I think you articulated it very well, but of just someone singing something and you going, oh, oh, wow, someone else has experienced that. Someone else thinks that someone else, or even I've never been able to articulate that. And now it like there are words to what I've been feeling or thinking. And just this beauty of of feeling, as you said, connected and a part of part of something uh, is to me really important in uh, in music. But uh, you were so part of what you're talking about and something I've, I've kind of been interested in. You're talking about being creative and even serving people with your creativity and I would say even being around people who are or are not creative and how that affects you. You've been, your career has been successful. You've written some very powerful music, but also so has your wife. It's not unique, but most people who are creative vocationally and are very successful in that kind of they are. And if they are married, their spouse isn't at least in the same category Um, (laughs) but yet both of you you're in a marriage where both of you on your own write music on on a high platform what's it like being a creative person married to a very creative person (laughs) Uh, high highs and low lows (laughs) Uh. (laughs) so we're um we're both super creative and passionate people and can be very emotional people too so it's it actually is wonderful like my wife is also a potter, and so uh, I have my studio on one end of the house, and she has her pottery studio on the other end of the house, and so most of our days, we drop the kids off at school and do our stuff, and then I come to work on this side of the house, and she used to work on that side of the house, and then we meet in the middle for coffee or for lunch. It, it's really great. Like, it is really, really great, and I joke 
We, we, we honestly like, so I remember I did an interview a while back where people asked me, how hard is that working with your wife in the studio? And you know, it honestly, it wasn't hard at all. It actually was really great. Now she, I'm more like, I want to hash it out. I want to get in and like work with the song and work it to death. She kind of wants to do it and leave. She's like, you know, she's basically like, I just want the heart of the song. And then she's like, I don't really care what you do with it <laughs> but like for instance like king of my heart for instance she wrote that whole song and it's really funny that so many people well okay i wrote the end of the song the you're never gonna let me down part and i probably spoke into some of the other things but not in a major capacity like she pretty much wrote the whole song and uh, a lot of people you know ask me what does it feel like to write this huge worship song i'm like i don't really know you need to ask my wife you know but we have very different um, approaches. It's like I write every day, most days. As she hasn't written a song in like a few years, you know, she's been doing other stuff and now she's sort of wanting to get back into it, you know. So it is really interesting when early on when we first went into music full time, we traveled together all the time. That was a really, really fun time. Is you know, it was new and it was a little bit stressful too because we didn't have any money and we're trying to figure out how to make a living, but it was the two of us and we were traveling the world and it was so much fun. After we had the kids, uh, when Jude was first born, we hadn't decided what we were gonna do. We thought, will we be one of those families that like travels with their kids? And after two trips with Jude as a baby, I realized like, we are definitely not gonna be one of those families <laughs> in the cards. But you know what? I know families who do, you know, like a lot of it just depends on the people. And every child is so different. Like even my three are, I don't know how they came from the same two people because they are so different. But we realized, and she also wasn't as ambitious as I, I am with the music. You know, she likes to sing it. She likes to write it. But she, to this day, has never done an interview. And she doesn't care at all about planning or marketing or promotion, any of that stuff. She doesn't care at all about it. She'd rather not do any of it. She just liked to show up and sing. And uh, so after we had the kids, she she really got um, inundated with sort of mommy land for a while. And that wasn't on purpose. Just, you know, I was traveling. She was raising the kids. And so it's really been in the past few years that um, we, we've tried to do more together. And she's come back to her pottery and she wants to start writing songs again. And it, it it's really great, you know. We're also very passionate. I feel like in a lot of relationships you have one you know, member of the couple is a little bit more uh, analytical and the other member of the couple is a little more, um, what would be the opposite of analytical? Um, <laughs> and we're both sort of on the creative side and the emotion, we're both on the emotional side. So <laughs> what am I trying to say here? <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of fireworks for better and for mm. worse, <laughs> you know, cause we're both very passionate people, but, but it's great. I love it. So you said that for your process, you are, you like to get in there and hash things out, I believe is the, yep. the word you used. Do mm -hmm. you have, is there any sort of um, normal process you have for when you think you should or even just want to invite someone else into your creative process for, for you to be writing music? Uh, like is Sarah often the first person? Is she rarely ever? Or do you have specific people that you typically go to for working things through? So I think a lot of people, when it comes to songwriting, a lot of people co-write, you know, they'll get in a room together. You guys may have done this, I don't know, but you get in a room and you sit down and you write a song together. I've never been really good at that, you know, sitting around and what's this next word? What's that? What should we do here? I've never been really good at that, but every song or every idea 
I feel like it's hard for me. Sometimes I, I, Stephen King says, and he's talking about writing books, but it's the same with anything. He says you write the first draft with the door closed and the second draft with the door open. I'll write something and I'll feel it, but I don't always know that it's going to be something anyone else is going to feel. So I will always bring my ideas to her. You know, if I have a verse and a chorus, uh, or even just a good chorus, I'll go play it for her. And she's always brutally honest with me. Brutally honest. But she's a great audience because, number one, she doesn't overthink things. You know, and the average listener is not picking you apart. They really just want to know, like, what what is the overall emotion or feeling, you know, that I'm supposed to be feeling? Like, what is supposed to be happening right now? That's what most listeners are feeling. My wife doesn't dig into the details so much. She just listens, and it's either like good or it's not good. She doesn't pick it apart, you know, which is really helpful, you know, because I'm always like in every little nuance, you know, which sometimes matters but a lot of times it's like you just waste so much time on little details because no one sees those little details they just feel the the they just experience the song as a whole and so um and sometimes those little details can distract you from the way the whole song is supposed to feel you know you can waste a lot of time but i'll always bring them to her and she's really good because she's a good listener and she listens um intuitively and also she's super honest um that's really helpful so i always at some point bring the song and I've, I've got a handful of people. One, she's one person. Then I have a good buddy of mine who, he's the designer who designs all my stuff. He's a good friend. And they're both super honest with me. And they're also both at different ends of the spectrum and sort of, you know, have a loose sort of saying that, um, or maybe it's not a saying, but a loose sort of principle that if both Sarah and Eric like the song, it's going to be a big deal. Mm. <laughs> nice. They both listen to music differently, but they both have good taste. It's just different. So if they both like it, then I know, okay, I'm doing something right. And then I'll have producers I work with, people like Gabe, uh, Gabriel Wilson, and then uh, my buddy Jacob, Jacob Early, who produced the new record. So he and I, he, he's also a really great songwriter. He and I didn't like sit down and write songs per se, but I'd bring ideas to him and he'll steer me in different directions. So there's always some sort of collaboration going on, whether it's with other musicians, but rarely do we sit down together. Together, which is not a bad idea. I'm just not very good at it. And I think it's because I'm writing mostly from feel and intuition. And I, I get hyper-focused. Like I, I work for long periods of time, but I'm writing mostly from feel and intuition. It's very hard for two people to do that together, I think, because it's hard for me to tell the person across the table from me like what I'm feeling. Uh, they almost have to just like imagine it. And sometimes they'll have a great idea, and I'm like, sorry, that just doesn't work because it doesn't, that just isn't what I'm feeling. But it may be a great idea. So that may be an area I can grow as a co writer. People ask me all the time to co write songs, and I, I never end up doing it. I'll, maybe I'd make a lot more money if I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I'm just not good at it. I think that's kind of actually for me personally a freeing thing to hear because in my songwriting the amount of times I've co-wrote with someone it always just feels like we're stumbling over each other and like I just feel like it's much more comfortable for me to create something maybe not a finished product but we create something and then bring it to someone and say hey what do you think but I, I feel like I always hear people say like, oh, no, you should write with someone at all times. I don't know. I just can't really do that very well. Mm-hmm. So, I know. so I'm glad you said that. Before we close, you have a beautiful new album. I'm just wondering, like, what is your hope with this album now that you've released it to the public and people are listening? What's your biggest hope? I, if I sum it up into one statement is I really want this record to remind people that they're alive. If I'm going to use... 
you know, the Christian terminology, you know, Jesus says, I came not to just give you life, but that you have life more abundantly, right? And so I think that goes back to, I mean, you can read that a number of different ways. There's probably multiple ways to read that that are good. I could totally see that as um, these ideas between survival and really living, you know, and the things you do to exist and then the things that make existing a thing worth doing. And so, like, gratitude is a really big part of this record. Like, you know, it's almost like an existential gratitude album. (laughs) You know, it's like that was literally my thought going into this is like, I want gratitude to be the underlying, uh, dominating theme on this record. Because I feel like that's what I'm called to do at this phase of life is help people. I don't even want to say help people be grateful and not even help people learn to be grateful, but help people to recognize the gratitude that's already inside of them. Because I think that a lot of times, and I use the the language on the record about, you know, are we asleep inside the miracle? And it's very easy to just live your whole life and not acknowledge how absolutely, absolutely significant it is. It's very easy, like, you know, like I think most days, we spend most of our time, most days, in total, (laughs) like, in like a complete unawareness as to how unbelievably significant just our existence is. And so, like, to me, that's like a really, it's been really, it's been my path to God in this season. His gratitude. Because any question I have about God, no matter what, let me put it this way, no matter what my questions, no matter what questions I have about God, there's a few things that I cannot deny. And one is that, like, I'm a miracle, you know? Like, absolutely a miracle. You know, and I wake up every morning, I see my wife, and I look at her, and you know what? She is absolutely a miracle. My children are miracles, and everyone I run into is a miracle. We're just so close to it that we feel so common. And But there really is no such thing as normal life. And so it, if I can do anything <laughs> in this season with my music is trick people <laughs> into experiencing the reality of the significance of their own life. Is, you know, And that's what music and art does. It's the, Pablo Picasso says it's the lie that tells the truth. It's the sounds are not feelings, but the sounds give you feelings or expose your feelings or help you feel something, help you see a certain way. Like you were saying earlier about when you see people from different backgrounds, different races, different, you you know, when you see them in lead roles or whatever, you you see things differently. Maybe it's kind of like when you buy a new car, you, you don't think anyone has and all of a sudden everyone has it. Well, they've had it all along. You just didn't see it. I guess, uh, Man, what am I trying? <laughs> what am I trying to say? Is that can I trick you through my music? Can I trick your body into feeling the reality of your significance in the universe? That's that's what I want to do. You know, and maybe you could say, can I help you feel loved by God or realize how loved you are? Even if all I can do is help you realize how significant it is that you exist. You know, that's what I want to do. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what I want. That that would, that's the thing I would love to accomplish with the new record. Hey guys. 
Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard or want to know more about our podcast, I want to invite you to follow us on Instagram at Can I Say That. That's where you can find what our next topic is going to be, who's speaking, and a lot more about them. We also invite you as an audience member to be a more active part of this conversation by participating in polls, answering questions, and even sending in comments and messages. So please come and join us.